At this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to our scripture passage for this evening. 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we will be reading the entirety of the chapter. You will find it on page 486 in your pew Bibles, page 486, 2 Samuel chapter 11. Hear now the word of the Lord which we will contemplate this evening. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She, sent, or she came to him and, she, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a great distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, Why did you get so close to this the city to fight. Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerub Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Tabez? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him also, 
your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask the Lord would bless our time of study this evening. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence, having heard your word read aloud, we ask that it may penetrate to our deepest places. May we be convicted. May your truth reign supreme. May our lives be changed. May we go from this place better equipped to be your people in your world. We ask that you be with your servant. May your truth be spoken faithfully, and may you be glorified through him. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Amen. People of God, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, tonight we read probably one of the most well-known passages in Scripture. David and Bathsheba. This is a passage that maybe you don't tell the little ones, but eventually you do hear about it. David goes out and does something bad. And he sins. David, this righteous man of God, this man who, from the little boy who defeated Goliath, who ran for his life from Saul, who managed to become the ruler of all of Israel, he now sits in his house in Jerusalem. And we see the first of his stumbles. David here though being a man, is a man of blood. And in fact, when he says to the Lord, Lord, you've done so much for me, I want to build a house for you. I want to build you a temple so that you're no longer living in a tent, but that the ark has a place of honor amongst our people. And the one thing that the Lord says that prevents him from building a temple. No. Your hands are stained with blood. And it is that blood that defines David and his downfall. The arc of David's life is amazing. The stories that we hear of triumph of glory, of overwhelming faithfulness to God. 
And yet, just as amazing as those triumphs are, just as glorious as the stories of faithfulness, David is not an artificial figure. David has fallen like the rest of us. And his meteoric rise is followed by a catastrophic downfall. And this is no better displayed than in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The writer of 2 Samuel writes in verse 1 that in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, many people in the past, many pastors even in the past, have said, well, it's the time when the king should go off to war. David should be out there. But if you read a little further into 2 Samuel, this instance here was probably later on in David's life. And David had a habit of being in the front of battle. And the problem that he had, well, the great thing was that he won the respect of many of his men. In fact, there's a whole list of them earlier in the book, his mighty men. But he's now the king of a nation. Saul had gotten in the thick of it, and he died at Gibeah. All his mighty men can think of is, David, we don't want you to be like Saul. We can't have you die like this. You've been such a great leader to us. You have been the one king that we've needed, anointed by God, shown many great things. You are the, the brave leader. You've brought the people together. You finally conquered the Jebusites. We now have Yerushalayim. The house of the God of peace. David, you can't be another Saul. Tragically falling on your own sword. Stay home. Let the young guys deal with it. Yeah, we understand. You want to get in the thick of it. We know that you're a tactician and a battle planner. But we also know that generals are supposed to lead from the back. David, you're far too close to the line. So David stays back in Jerusalem. But David sends his right-hand man, the leader of his own elite army, but also the Israelite army. He doesn't just call the special forces together and say, we're going to go for a raid. He says, we're bringing everybody together. And we're going after the Ammonites. And the reason for this is actually quite important. Because we read previously that the Ammonite king had passed away. And his son had taken over. And being a good neighbor, David sends a messenger up to the Ammonites. And says... Your father dealt favorably with us. Your father, the king, may, he, may his memory be understood and known and loved. May you be like him. 
And instead, this messenger is beaten, humiliated, and sent away back to the Israelites with a message that my father was too lenient to you people. A messenger of condolence is made a mockery of and sent back to the Israelites. On the anniversary of that, at the same time, the spring, when the time of kings go off to war, David says, it's time to go to war. I gave you condolences. Your father had passed, and I was willing to establish diplomatic relations with you. No more. David sends the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonite army. And they besieged them at Rabbah. But again, David remains in Jerusalem. And what's David to do with nothing but time on his hands? Well, in the spring, it gets a little warm in Israel. And so, as is custom, you go out onto the veranda, onto the roof of your house. Enjoy the cool breeze coming off of the Mediterranean Sea. As the air passes to and fro, it's so refreshing. But David, one evening, goes out on his roof, getting up from bed, and he sees a woman bathing. And she is remarkably beautiful. In fact, this is one of the few times we hear in Scripture of a woman being marked as very beautiful. So we know that she was astounding. If even the Holy Spirit says this woman was beautiful. And David, hmm, go find out who she is. Now remember, David had already been married to four women at this point. And one of the things, one of the uh, covenants that were supposed to bind the people and how the king was supposed to act was he was not supposed to gather wealth and riches. He was not supposed to build up an army too numerous that you would no longer trust in the Lord, and he was not supposed to accumulate wives. Wealth, love, power. The greatest political downfalls we have always heard come from wealth, love, and power. And it's not just in Israel. It's happened in the United States. It's happened in Europe. It happened throughout all of history. But again, David is a fallen man, just like you and me. He sends a messenger. Who is she? And he is told, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
Now, the messenger could have easily just said, oh, that's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But instead, he gives the name, she's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. You see, this messenger had an idea of what David already had in mind. And he raises two giant red flags as if to wave off David going, don't do it. You know what's going to happen. Don't do it. The first red flag is that he says, she's the wife of Uriah to the Hittite. She's a married woman. And you, in your coronation, had to read the Ten Commandments, had to read the book of Leviticus. You know how bad it gets for someone who commits adultery. Don't do it. Strike one. Then he says, she's the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was the name of one of David's mighty men. A fighter that had been with him since he was running from cave to cave from Saul. This is a man that had been at the lowest point of David's career. This is a man who had fought with him. From when he was in Ziklag of the Philistines, through the Shephelah, until he finally comes and is crowned king of Judah in Hebron, and then eventually king of all Israel in Jerusalem. This is a man who has fought with him tooth and nail for decades. This is his daughter. Not only that, David, but Eliam happens to be the son of one of your most trusted advisors, Ahinoam. She's the granddaughter of the guy who gives you advice. Don't do it. Strike two. David, if nothing else, is stubborn and has blinders. The emotions are high, the evening is cool. The hormones have kicked in. At this point, you could say, Elton John, can you feel the love tonight is in the air? He doesn't care. He knows what he wants. And so he does it. He sends a messenger. She comes to him. And they spend an intimate night together. Notice what's in parentheses here. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Now, there's been some debate as to what that actually means, but I think it means something particular. During the time of a woman's uncleanness is the time of her menstruation. And after every time of the month, a woman had to be purified from that. We talked about when... Uh, Mary, after giving birth, goes to offer the two pigeons at the temple to purify her from her uncleanness of giving birth. 
Bathsheba had just purified herself from her period. She knew what time of the month it was. She knew what cycle it was. She knew that she could easily get pregnant. And she did it anyway. Now, we don't know what Bathsheba's motivations are. We have no idea what's going through her mind. We just have an idea of what's going through David's mind. Bathsheba could have been scared. This is the king that's asking for me. How dare I say no? She could have been attracted to David too. We don't know that. What we do know is that she knew how dangerous this was. But she conceives and sends word to David, I'm pregnant. David, who thought that a one-night stand wouldn't have any consequences. David, who thought, you know what, I can do this, nobody's going to know, it'll be okay, we'll be fine. And yet, David learns the hard way that there's always consequences to sin. Don't we often do the same things? It's okay, it's just a little white lie. I really don't want to get in trouble for this, it'll be all right. You know, I know she dropped the money, but you know, I don't want to you know, be a bother. Yeah, okay, fine, he cut me off, but, you know, I really need to cut him off too. Don't worry about it. I don't know who that is in that car up there. Yeah, what inevitably happens? Road rage. The white lie gets found out. The 20 bucks is actually the 20 bucks that she needed to buy groceries, formula. Oh, come on, it can't be that bad. There's always consequences to sin in this world. She sends word to David, I am pregnant. And David panics. David can't figure out how this happened. What do you mean you're pregnant? You're pregnant? It was only once. You know what? It, don't worry about it. We'll cover it up. David, the master tactician, David, the mighty man, David, the faithful one of God, David, the man of God who had conquered, who had subdued the Philistines, who killed Goliath, the master tactician on the battlefield, now attempts to become the master manipulator. David sends word to his commander, Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. When Uriah comes to him, Notice the conversation. How's Joab? 
how's the army doing? You know, how's the battle going? I'm really interested. Then David says, you know what? You fought so hard. Go on home. Enjoy the comforts of home for a little bit. The idiomatic expression here in 2 Samuel is, go down to your house and wash your feet. Washing your feet in the Hebrew would denote a connotation of, go home and enjoy the pleasures of home. Enjoy your bed. Enjoy being home. Settle in for a little bit. Enjoy the comforts. And yes, that includes enjoy marital affairs with your wife. But Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, doesn't do that. Uriah left the palace. The king sends a gift. But Uriah sleeps at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and doesn't even go down to his own house. You might notice at this point that I've been saying Uriah the Hittite a lot. If you read back through the annals of the Bible, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so, this is the Toledot of, the book of, you'll notice that there is no person in Israel that would ever have the name of Hittite. Because a Hittite is actually derived from Ham, Canaan. Uriah is a Canaanite, married to a Jewish woman, a mighty man of David, and one who is intimately linked to this country of Israel. But he says to David, the one who is beloved of God, I, a foreigner, will act righteously. I am an Israelite by choice. I am an Israelite that fights with Israel, that married into Israel. How in the world could I enjoy the comforts of home when all of Israel is out in the field? And now David, the beloved one of God, gets mud on his face. The righteousness of a foreigner upstages and contrasts against the sin of David the Beloved. David says to him, stay another day. I understand all of Israel is out in the field living in tents. I understand you feel bad. Don't worry about it. Stay one more day and then I'll send you back. It'll be okay. But David has plans. David goes, okay, I can't get him to just enjoy his wife, so maybe I can trick him to enjoy his wife. So David invites him into the palace, 
holds a glorious feast and gets Uriah drunk. David has to resort to getting a man drunk just so there's a chance that he'll sleep with his own wife. And yet it still doesn't happen. David's plan falls time and again and again and again. And he doesn't come clean. The man is standing there in front of him. He could easily have said, I have sinned before God and before you. I slept with the wife and the child that she now bears is not yours but it's mine. He could have taken the path of humiliation. He could have taken the path and said, you know what? May God be glorified through this, but I apologize because I was completely in the wrong and I deserve to be punished. But instead, no, come on in. Have some wine. Have some more wine. Have some more wine. Now go home. And Uriah still doesn't go home. Uriah sleeps with the servants on mats. David said, fine. You won't listen to me and go home. I can't get you drunk and go home. I didn't want it to come to this, but there's no other way. David signs the death warrant of Uriah and puts it in the man's own hand. Imagine if you were on a battlefield and the general of the entire campaign says, here, I want you to take this message. I know you spent a couple of days here, but I need you to take this message back to the front. It's very important. You take the message and you give it to your commanding officer and he says, great, awesome. All right, you're going to go with the special forces and you're going to go into this operational field tomorrow. And you go into that operational field and everybody spreads out and the enemy artillery comes in. Almost like they knew you were going to be there. That's exactly what happened here. Joab knows that there's going to be fighting. He puts him in a spot where he knows people are going to die. And Joab is completely complacent with David's order to murder one of his own men. And David wants to be so sure that he says, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest and have everybody else withdraw. Leave him. At least if he's captured, I don't got to worry about it. Best case scenario, if he's dead, I don't got to worry about it. David, the man with blood on his hands. And Joab, sure. 
I don't know why, but sure. You're the king. Joab follows orders. Uriah dies. When Joab sends an account to David, he says, oh, by the way, I did what you ordered. We got beaten back. We fought back. Men died. Not just one, but many men died. In fact, portion of the king's men died. Oh, but by the way, Uriah the Hittite's dead. I don't know how this was delivered. But you can almost hear the sarcasm from Joab's voice from the messenger. Where he says, oh, by the way, we stepped up and they shot arrows at us. People died. The king's men died. Israelites died. We put ourselves in a position we never should have been in. But you know what? At least Uriah the Hittite died. I don't know if Joab knew exactly what he was doing, but there is a possibility he definitely could have. And there's a possibility he, as a good soldier, said, sure, but I don't like it. David then says, don't worry about it. Encourage Joab. Take the city. I know you can do it. Sure enough, he does it. Notice verse 26 on. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house. Bathsheba mourns. Bathsheba's husband has passed. A marriage is broken by the death of the one she loved. But after the time of mourning was over, David says, I know how I can make this right. She's still pregnant. It's okay. We'll just, we'll just add her. She can become part of my family. And she bears him a son. Now the writer of Samuel doesn't tell us, but maybe there was an awkward counting going on. Well, if David brought her in here and she gives birth to a son here, huh, maybe the math doesn't add up correctly. Or maybe nobody questioned it. We don't know. But what we do know is something that explicitly is stated by the writer of 2 Samuel in verse 27. The thing David had done displeased the Lord. David, beloved of God, 
anointed as a shepherd boy. Time and time again had done many mighty things in the name of the Lord. And yet, when he makes a mistake, and a red flag is thrown up, don't do it, David, he ignores that one. And then another red flag pops up, don't do it, David, and he does it anyway. And he sins. And instead of owning his sin, he goes, oh, Well, you know, at least nobody will figure this out. And then the consequences come. And I'm not even talking about the spiritual consequences yet. I'm just talking about the physical consequences. David, you committed adultery. David, you took something that wasn't yours. You coveted. You committed adultery. You disobeyed the Lord your God. You didn't live with him as the Lord of your life. You who are beloved of the Lord have taken his name in vain. And to cap it all off, you murdered your own soldier, your own advisor's grandson-in-law, One of the men who you have trusted with your own life for decades. His daughter's wife and his daughter have all been played by your shameful lust. David, what you've done has displeased the Lord. It is condemning upon condemning upon condemning. And yet time and time again we do the same things in our own lives, don't we? We ignore the red flags. We ignore the things that we should pay attention to. Because we're stubborn and bullheaded and want to do things the way we want to do them. God, I know you're sending me down this direction, but I don't care. This is a better path. Lord, I know you want me not to work on Sundays, but the opportunity came up. I can make a whole lot more money, and it's just a couple hours. I can still come to church in the morning. I'll just work in the afternoon, and then I'll be okay. Lord, I know, I understand, but and the fingers of our own self-righteousness wrap around and pull us under. David lies to himself more than anything else. He lies to himself by saying, It'll be okay. He lies to himself by saying, it'll be okay as long as no one finds out. 
He lies to himself by saying, it'll be okay as long as no one finds out because Uriah will think it's his own child. It'll be okay because Uriah will think it's his own child and he won't know because he'll be too drunk to remember it, but it'll be okay. It'll be okay because even if Uriah is captured, it'll be till after the war and it'll be too late anyway. It'll be okay because Uriah's dead. She's my wife now. So we just did a little bit before the wedding. It's easy to justify things. And David was no different than us in that. We justify our sins before our own eyes. I know God, but... It's so easy to fall into that pit. First, you lie to the people around you. You lie to God. And then you lie to yourself. It'll be okay. And then one lie leads to another, which leads to another problem, which leads to another sin, which leads to an even deeper and deeper and deeper pit. And you are left with one simple sentence at the end of it. This thing that you have done displeases the Lord. As the passage continues and as other stories evolve, we see that David's sin like many of ours, just leads from small beginnings and eventually grows into something horrible. And instead of confessing our sins, we'd rather try and cover them up. Because at least if nobody knows, we'll be okay. But we have a God who knows all sins. The sins that we convince ourselves of. The sins that we lie to ourselves about. The sins that we say, as long as nobody else finds out, we'll be fine. Then the sins that have such dire consequences that we sin upon sin upon sin just to try and cover it up. The Lord knows. And the Lord is displeased. A righteous and just God is now faced with a child that is unrighteous. A holy and pure God is now faced with a creation that is impure. And that cannot stand in front of the king 
of the universe. But praise the Lord, that's not the end of David's story. That's not the end of our story. Eventually, you learn in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that David is confronted with his sin. He is rebuked, and he owns his sin. And yes, there are still consequences, and there are still dire consequences. But God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. That is the lesson that David ultimately learns in this passage. But it is also a lesson that we must understand. No matter the sin, whether it's lying to ourselves, lying to those around us, whether it's been compounded with sin upon sin upon sin so much that the fingers of pride and of self-righteousness have wrapped themselves around our throats as if we are pulled into the pit of despair. That those fingers are released. The chains fall off. The darkness is dispelled. And light comes flooding through. Because God provides a savior. One who has paid for sins as gross and as heinous as this. David was a man of blood. We too are people of blood. But we are a people of blood pulled from the nations, a people of the blood of Christ. And our sins, our failings, our problems, they all, all can be washed clean. There is not a sin, not a faltering, not a falling short of the mark that can ever be so great that God in Jesus Christ cannot wash it away. He proved that when he was born in Bethlehem, when he performed miracles by raising the dead, by healing the lame, by curing the leprous, by dying on a cross. He paid the price. Now that doesn't mean that we get to escape all of the consequences of our sin in this world. But like him who was the first fruits that rose from the grave, so too we can look for the hope of the resurrection. And then David writes a psalm after his adultery with Bathsheba. How does he end the psalm? The Lord is my deliverer. That is what David learned. And that's what we must be reminded of. No matter our sin, no matter how we can wrap ourselves 
in the grossness of darkness. No matter the pain and anguish that we ourselves experience or we ourselves inflict. That God's purity, righteousness, holiness can all be imputed to us by the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. The savior of the world. The lamb that was slain for you and for me. That is the call that goes out tonight. That is the call that goes out to the world every day. Repent and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. People of God, that's what we need to remember every day. We could be the most beloved of the Lord in this world and still falter. We could be so wrapped up in self-righteousness that we could just compound sin upon sin. But there is no height, no depth, no angel or demon, no principality or power that could ever separate us from the love of God. And there is nothing in this world that could prevent the grace of God and the mercy of God from washing us clean. David eventually would learn that and write about it in his psalms. May our lives be a psalm of continual praise for what Christ has done for us because his mercies are new each day. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne of grace, we read a common story that we have heard from our youth, but we are once again reminded that just as the most righteous can falter, so too can we. But just as your servant David could compound himself with sin, even he too knew that you were a God who saves you are a God who delivers. And ultimately, when you sent your son down to die on the cross for us, that you are the God who delivered us. That your mercies are new each morning. And that we may go from this place reminded that we are not condemned, guilty. But rather, we are your children. And the price has been paid. We are your people. The works of your hands. Lord, may we live ever in gratitude for you and for what you've done. This we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.